Wow, what is up, LifePoint Durant? <laughs> Sounds a little feisty in here today, so always good to be with you guys. My name is John McLarnon, and I am the site pastor at our Crossroads location. If you're not familiar with what that is, it used to be called West, and we have moved out of that facility, and we're meeting in Dillard Drive Middle School now. So today was just our third Sunday there and getting prepared for February 2nd to really be a big push in the community. So we'd appreciate your prayers over that. We're in the middle of this series called The Story, and today, if you've been tracking along in the Story Bible, I think we're in chat, I think we're at 13 or 14, don't hold me to it, but it's called um, The Kingdom is Torn in Two. So in order for us to really think about that today, I thought, who knows what this phrase means? A divided house. Anybody know what that means? A divided house. Anybody live in a divided house? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's a few hands here. There's a few more of you that maybe don't want to acknowledge it, but a a divided house is when like two or more people who are fans of competing teams live under the same roof, all right? So we know what we're talking about. Now, I, I grew up in Missouri, and so as a lifelong Missouri Tigers fan, it was like, you're not gonna date a girl who likes Kansas. That's just the way that's gonna work. And then I met a girl and I married my wife who lived in Oklahoma. So I kind of became a little bit of an Oklahoma Sooners fan. And it was like, we just don't hang out with people who are from Texas. That's kind of the way. (laughs) Well, well, then we moved here. Like I've lived in North Carolina for about 15 years now. And um, I'm a big basketball fan. So I started following one of the local teams when I was in high school a long time ago. And uh, I outed myself in the first service. I promised I wouldn't do that here. But... uh, (laughs) I have, I moved here, I thought this, the rivalries here are really, really intense. And so when you meet people who are part of a divided house, you're like, they must have something special, right? They really do love each other in order to put up with one another. And so I actually have some friends who are part of our uh, Crossroads campus. And she was a student in Chapel Hill and he was a student at NC State and they met one another and they got married. And uh, the way I make sense of it is that they met at a party. So I think that's probably how that happened. But uh, in order for them to kind of deal with that relationship, there's actually a a whole group of people and organizations that deal with this kind of thing that help you um, talk about a house divided. So they have one of these out front of their house right here. So because uh, lines get drawn and loyalties, you know, get established, and then they brought kids into the relationship, which really messed things up so they don't know how to dress them. But maybe this is, this is uh, maybe descriptive of your divided house, but I think there's more. I mean, you see people with car... Okay, now let's just stop here a second because I am a fan of one of these schools right here. And uh, don't hold it against me, but I started cheering for Duke years ago. And as a real fan, like if you're a Carolina fan or you're a Duke fan, like you would never put this out, would you? I mean, there's like real intense hatred for one another here. I did decide that the only way I would use this is that I would just wipe my feet on the left side and then the, the rest, <laughs> the other side would be, would be there for everybody else to see. So I, I don't know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we're not going to get too deep into that. But um, this is how they found a solution, right? So they watch the games separately. They, you know, they, they kind of get away from each other. And so this is the way they represent all that. And so maybe you've seen something like that. I actually have another friend. She's like a, a 65, somewhere in there, year old woman who is a loyal Duke fan. And she said, there's no divided house around here. You either cheer for Duke or you move out. That was her solution, you know, so... <laughs> 
So I think you'll understand a little bit about where we're going today. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hands. Our ushers will give one to you. You can follow along there. Um, If not, we'll be on the screens on the side. But I think that'll help you better understand where we're going today because division is, uh, is, is probably the right word to describe a lot of what we experience in our culture today, right? Not just in terms of sports, but we're divided when it comes to politics. We're divided when it comes to race. Even churches become divided or within those churches or a family can be divided and so can your own individual life. And so here's God's desire all along throughout the story was that his people, right, this Israelite nation would be united under one kingdom, under one name, under one family so he could bless them all together at the same time. But about 900 BC, we have King David, and then we have his son, King Solomon, and under their leadership, the nation's clicking along pretty nicely. Things are going pretty well until something happened, it all went wrong, and everything got derailed. And we're going to look at that thing this morning on what really happened and what went wrong so that we can avoid those kinds of things in our own lives. Because as we dive into it, here's what you have to understand, that what happens to this nation, Israel, today is something that potentially could happen in every one of our lives. So we come to 1 Kings chapter 11, and if you're looking for it in the Bible, it's about a quarter of the way in. If you start at the beginning, go a quarter of the way. If you open up the middle, go a quarter of the way back. But here we are in 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're picking it up where we left off last week with King Solomon. And King Solomon wrote some really great books. He built the temple, accomplished a lot of great things, but he also did that at the expense of other people. He had outrageously high taxes. He committed the people to forced labor. And so Solomon at this point is on his way out. And his plan is that his son, a guy by the name of Rehoboam, will take over. So here's the way it reads in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you've not kept my covenant and you've disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I'll take the kingdom away from your son. Even so, God's going to lay out this promise. Here it is. I will not take away the entire entire kingdom. I'll let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. So here's what you have to understand. Solomon, right, in spite of all the good things he did, made a series of really, really bad decisions and he turned away from God. He assumes that his son, Rehoboam, is just going to be the next king. But God steps in here and he says, no, that's that's not going to happen. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and your family. Now he's going to get to lead a really small handful of people that are from his own family tribe, but that's it. And then understand this promise as well. Because God has promised David that his family is going to rule in Jerusalem, God's going to keep a group of people there so that someday the Messiah is going to come from those people. Now, the other part of this is God saying, it's not going to be your son, but I, I've got another guy who's going to be king. Now, now, don't get these people confused, all right? Solomon's son is named Rehoboam, but the guy God is choosing is named Jeroboam, all right? Can we handle that this morning? 
Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, who's not part of Solomon's family, is actually one of Solomon's employees, and he's kind of an up-and-coming leader. So when Solomon finds out that it's not going to be his son who is king, but it's actually going to be one of his employees, he does what any king would naturally do. He tries to kill him. And so Jeroboam does the wise thing, and he runs for his life, and he goes into hiding, and he waits for Solomon to die. So here's what we have. Two guys who think that they're both in line to be the next king. Sounds like a disaster, doesn't it? Because anything we know with two heads is really a monster, and that's what we have to deal with right here. So all this is going to happen because Solomon made a series of bad choices in his life and turned away from God. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the first thing I think you got to pay attention to, is that our decisions today will affect others tomorrow. That what you choose to do today in your own life will affect other people tomorrow. For Solomon, he allowed his heart to be captured by a thousand women, all right? I can barely keep one wife happy. I don't know how he did that. But they turned his heart away from God. He pursued idols. He went off the rails, became selfish. And in the end, his decisions affected a whole lot of other people, not just himself. See, you probably know some people, maybe you've even been one of those people, I think I have at times in my life, that I was making a decision and my rationale was, I'm going to do this thing right here because, after all, I'm not really hurting anyone. Or you probably know somebody who's made a decision like that before, right? Because I'm not offending you personally, because I'm not cheating on you personally, because I'm not you know, harming you. I'm not doing anything to you personally. I tell myself, hey, it's going to be okay. Everything's kind of going to work out in the end. And I might even be willing to say it's not probably the best decision for me in the end, but I'm really not hurting anyone. And many of us, if not all of us in the room this morning, know this just it just is right, isn't it? That the decisions you make affect other people because you're living it. Like you're living out the consequences of someone else's choices. You live through the ripples of someone else's decision, maybe when you were a kid, and now here you are as an adult, and you're still living out the fact that someone else made a decision yesterday that severely affects you still today. You didn't ask for that, right? You didn't choose that. You didn't want that to happen, but it's true, right? Because our decisions today will affect other people tomorrow. Which also tells me that some of us probably walked in here today trying to decide between going this way and going that way. And if we walk out of here today and actually do the thing that we're thinking about doing, we're going to set off a whole chain of events and leave behind a trail of damage that we never thought was probably going to happen. The good news is it also works in a really, really positive way, doesn't it? that you could choose to do wise things, you could choose to do right things, and so by doing those, leave a trail of really, really good things behind you. That if you don't return that call, or if you don't get in that car, or if you save that money and not spend that money, you make good decisions, you can leave behind a really, really positive kind of legacy. Well, Solomon made some decisions that damaged his relationship with God, fractured his family, ultimately split an entire nation into two kingdoms. Here's how it plays out. All right, Solomon dies. 
And the people just assume that his son Rehoboam is the next in line. So everybody goes outside of town. The whole nation gathers. Here's Rehoboam. He comes out for his big coronation, right? Well, everybody shows up, which means so does who? <laughs> Jeroboam. He comes out of hiding, right? Solomon's dead. He shows up. He begins to speak on behalf of all the people. And he makes this speech to Rehoboam. And he says, essentially, all right, what are your campaign promises? <laughs> I mean, what's the platform that you're about to run on? Because what we would like to see is for you to back off of the taxes that your dad really oppressed us with. We'd like to see you just serve people a little bit more. How do you feel about that? And Rehoboam says, okay, I'm going to think about it, but give me a couple of days and we'll reconvene. And so here's the way it reads in chapter 12 and verse 6. It says, then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon What's your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? Well, the older counselors replied, if you're willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be your loyal subjects. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. What's your advice, he says. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? And the young men replied this way. This is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. Now what you're getting ready to read here is 9th century BC smack talk from a king, all right? So if you're like, that doesn't sound very intimidating. This is pretty intimidating, all right? My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And everybody would go, whoa, wait a second. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. All right, so here's, here's Rehoboam, right? Hey, the people want me to ease up a bit. What do you think? And the wise elders who had advised his father, King Solomon, say, yes, that's what you need to do. You need to back off a little bit, show the people that you're here to serve them, and they will be your loyal subjects for as long as you want it to be that way. But that just didn't sound good enough to him, right? And so he goes to talk to his high school buddies. He essentially calls his frat brothers back together again. And they say, no, what you need to do is you need to turn up the heat, right? It's time to step on the gas. It's time to assert yourself and show who's really boss around here and establish your power. And Rehoboam had a chance to actually lead the people to turn back towards God. And he listened to the wrong advisors, he goes with his buddy's plan, and the moment that he makes this announcement to the people, the nation splits in two. There's 12 tribes, right, in the end in Israel, and 10 of them go, all right, if that's the way you're going to be, then we're out of here. We're going with Jeroboam. And they go up north and become the nation of Israel. <laughs> Rehoboam's family stays with him, essentially, and his tribe sticks around Jerusalem, and they unite around the name of Judah. So if you're taking notes, you're going to need to write this one down as well. Who we listen to will inform our decisions. Who we listen to will inform our decisions. An entire nation's divided here because Rehoboam decides to follow the advice of his friends and not the wise elders. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down over the years with someone at a coffee shop and they'll say, all right, here's the situation. And they'll roll out whatever's going on in their life. And then they'll say, what do you think I ought to do about that? And because they've taken the time and hopefully bought me my coffee, I can give them this advice, right? And I'll say, well, here's 
what I think God might have to say about that, and maybe we can find some scriptural principles to guide you in that decision, and we'll pray about it together, and I'll say, I think you need to seek some other godly advice, and, and it seems like, in the end, th- this is probably the way you ought to go with that. And sometimes it's just so obvious that all a person has to do is to get up from behind the chair, to walk outside, and do the thing that we just talked about. And it always breaks my heart to have people say, well, you know what my mom says, or everyone else has told me, or do you know you're the only person saying this? And to see them kind of ignore that truth and make a decision that just sets off a chain reaction of damaging events. So you tell me who you listen to for advice, and I can probably tell you how that decision is going to end up in the end. I try to tell my kids all the time, hey, let's see who your friends are. Let's try to have your friends over here to our place because I can get a better handle on what your future might look like if those are the people you hang out with. Which is why every time one of them comes to me and says, Dad, and I, and I have um, three kids, one's off to college, two teenage daughters, two in high school, all right? Prayers appreciated. So <laughs> when they come to me and say, Dad, tomorrow night, Bunch of people are going to the movies at nine o'clock. What do you think? Can I do that? Dad, big sleepover Saturday night. Can I, can I do it? My first question is always going to be, well, maybe, but who's going to be there? <laughs> who's going to be there? Because it matters who you listen to when you're making decisions. See, when someone would give me counsel or when I ask for that in my own life, and I may not agree with what they tell me, because they might actually be right. (laughs) What actually becomes important is for me to determine what their motives are. Because if it's out of a concern for me and to see me do the right thing, I should probably listen to that. If you find someone whose motives maybe are selfishly driven, then you might want to be wary of that. But the truth is that wrong advisors in our life who tell us what we want to hear lead us down a really, really dangerous road, and they don't tell us what we need to hear that will actually help us. A similar thing, by the way, happens to Jeroboam. He's got a great opportunity to lead Israel to follow God, but when people want to make a trip to Jerusalem to worship God, which seems like a really, really noble thing, he gets really, really nervous. Listen to this in verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I'm careful the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. So when these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They'll kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. Anybody read your Bible? You've been through the story 500 years earlier. Somebody built a gold calf. Didn't go over very well. He said to the people, It's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And he placed these calf idols in Bethel and in Dan at either end of his kingdom. So here's what he's saying is, he's trying to present to the people this idea that he doesn't want them to travel back to Jerusalem to worship. In his mind, right, if they get too close to Rehoboam and they get around his kingdom, they might turn their allegiance and then go back and unite with him. His ego gets in the way, and his advisors say, what you need to do is tell the people you're trying to make it easier for them to worship. 
This way they don't have to travel, right? Set up some golden calves for uh, worship as a substitute. And he actually sets up two idols on opposite ends of the kingdom to make it really, really easy. It's probably the first multi-site idol worship we can find in the Bible. That's what he's done here. And Jeroboam listened to people who led him to do a lot of things that were partly right, but not exactly as God wanted. So here's the third thing I think you got to keep in mind. I mean, decisions today affect others tomorrow. Who we listen to informs our decisions. But this third thing is really, really crucial to the whole story, is that our heart's commitment to God will determine our direction. Our heart's commitment to God will determine our direction. There's 38 kings that come on and off the scene during this time period. Five of them, to some degree, follow God. Five out of 38. And so I just want to leave you with one of them, a guy by the name of King Asa eventually becomes king of Judah. He's a contemporary of Jeroboam. So Rehoboam goes off the scene. Asa comes on to lead Judah. Rehoboam's still up here in Israel. He had a really rough upbringing, but he actually did not follow the example of his parents. Listen, this guy even kicked his own grandma out of the country because she worshiped idols, all right? So he really does want to honor God. But listen to what is said of Asa in chapter 15. It says that Asa did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight as his ancestor David had done. Asa's heart remained completely faithful to the Lord throughout his life. Here's a guy that's able to lead people to God in the midst of a line of leaders who are leading people away from God. I love this summary. His heart was completely faithful to God. In other words, you could think about it this way, right? That the degree to which my heart is committed to God will determine whether I'm moving towards unity or disunity in my life. And you can apply that to a lot of different uh, settings in your life. Because whenever there's two competing agendas, disunity is always going to be the result, right? And that's true for a nation. That's true for a business. It's true for a church, it's true inside of your house, right? And it's true inside of your heart. It can simply be something that's between what you want to do and what God wants to do. But when a heart starts to get out of line with God's desires and starts to pursue another agenda, the result is always division. I've talked to, uh, I've probably done 50 weddings in the last uh, 20 years, and I always sit down with a couple on the front end and one of the things I want to do is to make sure they've talked about everything, right? Have you guys talked about, I, I know you guys like each other now, but there's coming a day, right, where you may not get along very well. And I just want to make sure you have the right tools, that you understand uh, what, what, if you're going the right direction, right, and you're growing together. If we're sitting down over coffee, I'll pull out two stir sticks or straws or something like this. And maybe you've seen this before, but I'll say, all right, look, look, guy, this is your life, guy, and this is your life, girl. And you always want to be growing closer towards one another, don't you? And in the end, you got to have something to focus on that doesn't change, that's always there, you can count on. And I'll say, that's God. So the more you're both focused on God, the more you're going to be growing together. Here's what happens is at some point in your life, after you get married and his career really starts to take off, that even though you might be focused in and centered on God, he might get turned away a little bit and go towards career. And there may come a day when even though he's centered in and focused in on God, your kids come along and they get your attention and they start to turn your heart this direction. 
And at any point where they become two competing agendas, right, disunity is going to be the result. But I love this summary about Asa. He had a heart fully committed to God because he wasn't committed to any competing agendas. I mean, Rehoboam lets power get in the way. Jeroboam lets pride affect him. But here's Asa. I have one agenda, right? I want to do your will, God. I want to honor you. I want to live for you. And I want to lead other people to follow you. What a legacy. Wow, what, I mean, what a legacy. And God used Asa to fulfill his promise, right? That on the front end, he said, one day in Jerusalem, the king of all kings would come onto the scene and he would rule and he'd be the Messiah, he'd be Christ, he'd be the Lord, he would be Jesus. Because God's always got a plan. He's always got a plan. And no matter what the last page looked like, when you turn it over, God's always offering hope for a new beginning ahead. So let me just challenge you with a question and a thought before we get out of here today. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I mean, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I mean, yeah, I, I want to be part of a country that's united. I definitely want to be part of a church that's united. I want to have a family that's united. And the way to ensure that our heart is united is to become more fully committed to God. See, I don't know about you, I, I want to have my family say they were grateful I was here, not that they hated I was here. His heart was completely faithful to the Lord. Wow. Wow, what a way to go out. You see, what if you walked out of here today and you started to think differently about your decisions? And that thing that you're trying to decide about right now, what, what if you start to think about the fact that it's going to affect a lot more people than just you, and you decided differently? Or what if you started to listen to people who really cared about you and who were willing to put themselves out there and to tell you the truth, and when they advised you in a certain direction, you actually listened to them? And then what if you committed yourself wholeheartedly right, wholeheartedly to following God and God alone. Not what you wanted, but what God really wanted. Here's what I think would probably happen. That you and I would be remembered for all the right kinds of things. And in your life, you'd start to see that you were promoting unity in all areas of your life. All areas. What a legacy. What a legacy. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for great stories like this. Stories that are sometimes difficult to grasp. Sometimes concepts are um, deep and meaningful. But God, thank you for the example that they lay out for us of what it looks like to have a heart that's committed to you. God, thank you that you're always working. You always have a plan. You're always allowing us to turn the page and look towards a hope-filled future. God, thank you that your plan is always is always to provide a relationship between us and you. God, I pray for those in the room today who are trying to decide what that next step might be to become more wholeheartedly committed to you. That God, when we land on it, we have the courage to act on it and leave behind a great legacy for all those who will come behind us. And we pray all these things today in the name of Jesus, amen.